Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 10 and reading verses 1 through 13. Again, I invite you to turn in your Bibles and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. As we come to chapter 10 today, we need to remember that we find ourselves in the middle of a shift in emphasis for the apostle in his letter. Over the first eight chapters, Paul makes a clear and comprehensive presentation of that very important opening affirmation. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Those first eight chapters made clear that men are born in sin and incapable of ever attaining a personal righteousness that would be acceptable to God. Therefore, the only way they will ever be justified in God's sight is if God accomplishes it through faith in the atoning work of the God-man Jesus of Nazareth. If men accept Christ by faith, then they will be received into the family of God, be gifted with God's indwelling spirit, become a co-heir with Christ, and discover that nothing will be able to separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But as Paul brings that portion of his letter to its glorious crescendo, 
He then takes up the question that is percolating in the minds of many. What went wrong in the covenantal relationship between God and the Jews? In the covenant that God established with Abraham, the promise seemed to be that the children of Abraham would be the recipients of God's gracious favor. But then Israel was rejected, and now the Jews appear to be on the outside. The Gentiles appear to be on the inside. What has happened? And as we discovered last week, Paul's answer to the issue is that Israel failed to understand that God's promise was not to the biological children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to those whom God chose by his sovereign election. And so Paul says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Rather, the children of Abraham that God has in mind are all those whose faith in God results from God's call upon them. In other words, in the same way that Abraham's faith in God's promise was counted unto him as righteousness, so will it be for all those who respond in faith to God's call upon their lives. Now, Paul grieves over the fact that the majority of his kinsmen have failed to respond in faith to what God has done in Christ. And he goes so far as to say that if it were possible for him to be accursed instead of them, he would wish that. It troubles him deeply that so many of them have failed to recognize their true Messiah, even though they had every advantage. But he also acknowledges that because they did not pursue God's righteousness by faith, but sought to establish a righteousness of their own based upon works, that Isaiah's prophecy concerning a stumbling stone being laid in Zion would be fulfilled in the Jews, and the opportunity for the Gentiles to be welcomed in would then come. So as Paul comes to chapter 10, this heartache for his kinsmen remains, and he indicates that his desire for them, his prayer for them, is that they will come to know this power of God for salvation. He recognizes that they have a zeal for God, but it is a zeal that is misguided, for it is not according to knowledge. Now, here is a spiritual condition that we need to consider, for there are many who are zealous when it comes to religious things. They are genuinely enthusiastic. But if their zeal is not governed by a right understanding, then it is for naught. Ligonier Ministries' biennial survey on the state of theology just came out, and the third true-false question was this. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Now, it was not surprising that 67% of U.S. respondents agreed with that statement. But what was disappointing was that 58% of those who self-identified as being evangelical Christians agreed with that statement as well. 
Now, this is a biblical ignorance that does not bode well for the body of Christ in America because the sentiment represented by agreement with that question is not based upon the clear teaching of Scripture, but with the notion that a person's sincere enthusiasm or zeal for their religion is what is most important. Forget that God commands people to have no other gods before Him. Forget that Jesus says He alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by Him. Forget that we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. Forget that there is only one mediator between God and man, and He is Christ. Apparently, there are a whole lot of people who identify as evangelical Christians who are of the opinion that sincere adherents of other faiths also have God's ear. And that's nonsense. And Paul dashes that notion here. The Jews were sincere. They were zealous, but they were ignorant. Their zealotry was not according to knowledge. Now, he does not mean that the Jews had no knowledge of God at all. They had plenty of knowledge about God. But they were ignorant of this righteousness that is obtained by faith in Christ. But this was true of Paul himself when he was persecuting the church. He was as zealous as anyone could be, but he was ignorant of the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ Jesus. And wherever Paul went, he was largely met with a resistance on the part of the Jews whose blindness was very apparent. Paul refers to this blindness when he writes his second letter to the Corinthians and he speaks of it as a veil over their hearts because of their resistance to God. He says their minds were hardened For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, there were some who did turn to the Lord in faith, and then they saw. Luke records in the book of Acts in chapter 17, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them, therefore, believed. Now, why was this so important for the Jews particularly? Well, of all people, they were seeking to establish a righteousness of their own, which is the very antithesis of the gospel. Had the majority of them been like the Bereans, they would have discovered that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness through faith. No longer would they have needed to offer any animal sacrifices to God as atonement for their sins. No longer would they have needed to concern themselves with the ceremonial law. No longer would they have needed to be concerned about making pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year to satisfy a legal requirement. Because all that Christ did fulfilled the law 
perfectly. Now, Paul recognizes that the Jews are suffering with a spiritual blindness that is rooted in a desire to zealously pursue a personal righteousness. But there are many other people who zealously pursue other religious or philosophical notions that have no basis in reality or offer any grounded Just this week, I saw a brief video of a woman who was testifying to whoever listens to her, to her therianthropy. That's probably a new word to you, therianthropy. This is the belief that there are people who not only have their own spirit, but they also have animal spirits that show up from time to time. And she zealously explained that there were times when her canine spirit was at work in her. And with that canine spirit also came a more masculine characteristic. But when her feline spirit presented itself, that spirit was more feminine. Now, I'm sure that it was not her, but within a couple of days of seeing her make that testimony, someone else posted a a video that said underneath, we have a severe mental health issue in America. And the video showed someone dressed up in a full cat costume prancing down the sidewalk on all fours in a busy area such as New York City. Beloved, the world needs the gospel. And they are eternally lost without it. Now, while therianthropy may be an extreme psychological and philosophical delusion that does not affect very many, there are a host of other sublime philosophies that are far more acceptable to folks that have the same eternal result, which is so terribly sad given that the gospel is not that hard to understand. One does not need a master's degree to comprehend it. One does not need a lifetime of experience to lay hold of it. One does not need to be young or old, rich or poor, black or white, or anything in between to find it. It is readily available to all who will come to Christ in faith. Paul quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 30, which we read earlier. And the context here was the renewal of the covenant that God made with the Hebrews first at Sinai. And that first generation rebelled against God when he brought them to the borders of the promised land. And because they rebelled, for 40 years then, they were required to wander in the wilderness. And when the last of that generation died, God brought their children to the borders of the promised land once more, and they were given the opportunity to affirm the covenant God had first established with their parents. This generation was given the curses that would occur if they rebelled. They were given the blessings that would occur if they remained faithful to God alone. They were assured of God's forgiveness if they were to stray, but then repented. And then Moses says to them, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And he was telling them that God would do this spiritual thing in them if they would but turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. And God demonstrated His gracious love to them 
when he first rescued them from the clutches of Pharaoh. God did not require that they obey the Mosaic law before he saved them. The law did not come to them until they were first set free. And then the law was designed to reveal the heart of God to them and awaken them to their need for God's atoning work. And so Moses says to the children at this covenant's renewal that it's not hard. It's not far off. It's not recorded in heaven such that someone needs to ascend there to retrieve it, nor is it located across the sea where someone needs to navigate the deep in order to bring it back to us. It's been given to you already. It's already on your lips. It's already weighing on your heart. You simply need to respond to it in faith. And this is Paul's appeal to the Jews of his day and the Gentiles of his day. The gospel is founded on the notion that Jesus is Lord. And if that is what you will confess with your lips and believe with all your heart that Christ has conquered death in the grave, then salvation will come to you. Now, it's important that we not misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Paul is not advocating the approach that some employ, whereby if you simply repeat this prayer after me, you will be saved, because that is to minimize what Paul means by these words. To affirm that Jesus is Lord is to affirm that Jesus is God. Now, evidently, there are a number of evangelicals who do not understand that. In the Legionnaire survey, 61% of evangelical respondents agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, either they do not understand what it means to say that Jesus is Lord, or else there are a ton of Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses who are self-identifying as evangelicals. Because that's what they believe. To affirm that Jesus is Lord is to acknowledge what the Scriptures say about Him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So says John in his Gospel. Paul writes to the Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. The writer of the Hebrews says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. To say that Jesus is Lord is to affirm his deity even as one accepts his humanity, but it is also to affirm his supremacy over all creation. So for a Jew to make such an affirmation, it was no small thing. It challenged his monotheistic understanding. Nor was it a small thing in a Roman culture for anyone to declare Jesus as Lord when the Caesars were said to be gods. To claim that Jesus alone was Lord over all was a political liability. But such reservations are also present in our day. 
44% of evangelicals will affirm the statement that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now here's an ignorance that will find many at the judgment saying, Lord, Lord, did we not teach the middle school kids for 25 years? That should be worth something. Did we not serve on the worship committee for 20 years? And did we not go on 12 mission trips in your name? And he will answer them, I never knew you. When Paul declares, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he means that you are without reservation acknowledging that Jesus is God in the flesh. To consider him as anything less than that is to not believe in the Jesus that the Scriptures present. It is to believe in a fabrication of Jesus that suits a person's ignorant sensibilities. But more than that, Paul goes on to say, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now back in chapter 4, Paul was making the case that Abraham was justified before God by faith and not by works. The Scriptures tell us that Abraham believed God and God counted his faith unto him as righteousness. But then Paul makes that application to us and he says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And as we said at that point in our study, this is a most significant understanding of Christ's atoning work, for it was the resurrection of Christ from the dead that provides us with the assurance that the Father was perfectly satisfied with Christ's substitutionary atonement. Had Christ the Son failed to perfectly obey all that God the Father set before Him to do, the resurrection never would have happened and we would still be lost in our sin. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, as he said he would do, tells us that his sacrifice was fully acceptable according to God's demand for justice. So Paul says, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The meaning behind the belief that God raised him from the dead is that we understand that the debt has been paid in full and our salvation is all of grace by means of faith in the atoning work of Christ alone. And if a person wants to argue that it is unnecessary to believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, they do not have a faith that is the result of regeneration, and they can expect that the day will come when they will be put to shame. There are many learned seminary professors with multiple advanced degrees who will openly deny the bodily resurrection of Christ, and they will claim that whether you believe that is unimportant. And yet the Apostle Paul sets before all with ears to hear that it is essential to acknowledge and affirm that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead. This isn't too difficult for anyone to either believe or to affirm. 
And the amazing thing is that the first disciples were capable of carrying this good news to the furthest ends of the earth. And wherever the gospel was preached, there were people there who received it like the Bereans in faith, and they were grafted into the family of God. This gospel does not require that you be of extraordinary intellect, for it is understandable even by little children. It does not require that you be of a certain sophistication, for even blind beggars like Bartimaeus are able to receive it. It does not require that you know the full history of the Jews, for anyone who is acquainted with his own sin and is troubled by his failure to live righteously before God is ripe for the gospel and its message of God's love and forgiveness through faith in Christ. And this is why the seed of the gospel is finding good soil around the world and Christ's church is growing daily, gathering in the sheaves of Christ's harvest. Paul says there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The problem that the Jews had was that they pursued a righteousness of their own because they were ignorant of the righteousness that God freely offered to them through faith in Christ. That should not be our problem. The gospel is clearly set before us here. The message of God's salvation is perfectly set forth in this. And if we are willing to affirm that Jesus is Lord that He is very God of very God, that His atoning sacrifice at Calvary is all that is necessary to pay for our sin. And we know this to be true by virtue of His resurrection from the dead. And if we are willing to make that known by our voice because it reflects what we believe in our heart, then God will save. Have you come to that point in your life? I hope that you have. Like the apostle, my heart would break to know that there are any who have sat in these pews week in and week out for the past 30 years who still did not understand the gospel or have doubts about their own salvation. And if that is you, then I implore you. I implore you to surrender yourself to Christ in repentance and faith and ask Him to remove the veil that you might clearly see His glory and His grace and the free offer of salvation that He extends to all who will come. Let me invite you to pray with me for a moment.